Hi, and welcome to another episode of Physiology Corner with Professor Howard. I'm your host, Christina Howard, and today I'm recording a replacement episode uh, for one that I just deleted, and that is all about enzymes. So the reason that I deleted the episode and I'm choosing to re-record it is because I just felt like I didn't do it as well as I could have. Um, and there's some stuff that I wanted to address in that episode that I kind of lost track of and didn't end up talking about. So I decided, since I'm folding shirts, it's time for a redo. So this particular episode is aimed at anybody who wants to know more about enzymes um, and wants to achieve sort of a deeper basic understanding of what they are, how they work, and why they matter to us. And spoiler alert, they matter a lot. If we didn't have enzymes, I would not be talking to you because I would not exist. I wouldn't be dead, I just would never have come into being in the first place. So that's how much they matter. So whether you're a beginner biologist, you're in an advanced biology course, or you're one of my A&P students and you're needing a bit of a refresher about what exactly enzymes do, because we will talk about many of them over the course of A&P, uh, this episode is for all of you and all of that. So I'm going to start at the very, very beginning, and that is thermodynamics. And if you're rolling your eyes or you're going to push the pause button and turn the episode off, don't panic. We won't spend that much time on thermodynamics. It's just I need to explain the why of having enzymes. So why have enzymes at all? Well, chemical reactions, um, and you know, we're basically made of chemical reactions. So uh, the way that we stay alive is chemical reactions. The way that we digest and use energy from food is chemical reactions. The thoughts and feelings that you have that make up your personality and your experience of the world, those are chemical reactions as well. So they should matter to you. They are important. Here's the deal. The universe is extremely large and the compounds and chemicals in it are extremely diverse. And as long as there is even a little amount of heat, so we're above zero Kelvin, given enough time and enough thermal energy of atoms banging around, knocking into each other, all reactions would occur eventually, but we don't have time to wait for eventually. So you can increase the likelihood of a particular reaction happening if you heat up the system because that results in more atomic collisions and therefore more opportunities for atoms to interact with each other in a way that arrives you at the chemical compound you want. But even that doesn't increase the odds or likelihood enough for biological systems. So instead of waiting around for the reaction that we want to occur, biological systems use two tools to make the chemical reactions that we want to have happen happen. The first tool is, of course, having cells. So if you enclose specific chemicals in a little bag of water, that means that they're constrained by the cell membrane and therefore more likely to run into each other. But at the atomic level, the cell is still a very large place. So in order to further increase the likelihood of favorable chemical reactions, you add heat and enzymes. So for cells, 
with mitochondria, heat is a waste product of oxidative phosphorylation. So if you're performing aerobic respiration, you're going to give off some heat and that helps. But in addition to that, um, you want to have enzymes. And enzymes are proteins, which basically take two things that you would like to react together, sometimes two or more things, and holds them physically near each other in a way that increases the likelihood of the reaction that you want to take place and also increases the speed at which it takes place once you initiate the reaction. So the energy necessary to stimulate a chemical reaction is called the activation energy. And this also includes the element of likelihood, meaning if you left everything else the same, how likely would the reaction be to proceed? Without enzymes, the activation energy is high and the likelihood is low. With enzymes, the likelihood of a given reaction is increased because you're physically holding two reactants near each other and also the activation energy necessary to cause that reaction to begin is lowered. So through the work of enzymes, lowering activation energies and increasing likelihoods, that's how the work of our cells gets done. That's how you burn fuel. That's how you use energy. Um, it's how you move muscles if you've got muscles, skeletal, smooth, cardiac, or otherwise. So enzymes matter to you because they're literally how you stay alive. And we need enzymes because biological systems do not have time to wait around for reactions to occur. We need them to occur on a time frame that is making sense within our lifetime. So that's the why of having enzymes. Now we're going to go back to basics in a different way and address the what. So hopefully I've made the case to you about why having enzymes is good or favorable for survival. And now I'm going to pivot over to let's remind ourselves what enzymes are actually made of and in cells where they come from. So enzymes are proteins, and if you remember your biology of macromolecules uh, stuff, you'll remember that proteins are long chains of amino acids, and they're typically folded up into some shape. So let's begin with amino acids. Um, amino acids are an essential, essential nutrient, excuse me, and we get these from eating proteins of other organisms. So you can eat animal protein or you can eat plant protein regardless. Aside from the energy value that you get from protein, the other main reason to eat protein is so that you can take the amino acids from the protein you eat and use them to build up your own proteins. So there are 20 essential amino acids or so, and they all have different chemical properties, but a couple major things in common. And they have names that you might be familiar with. So tryptophan is an amino acid. You may have heard of tryptophan because it's often talked about uh, as being the reason that you get sleepy if you eat turkey. Turns out that's not really true. Um, feeling full is the real reason, oopsie, that you start to feel sleepy when you eat turkey, but uh, tryptophan is a precursor for 
melatonin, which is associated with sleep-wake cycles. And so that's kind of where that myth came about. But regardless, my point is you've probably heard of amino acids before. So amino acids are organic molecules, meaning that they are carbon-based, not that some nice farmer didn't use pesticides to grow them. That's a different thing. And amino acids have an amino group, which is on one side of a central carbon, and an amino group is an H2. And then they have a carboxyl group, which is carbon, oxygen, oxygen, hydrogen, typically. Um, and then on the other, so there's a central carbon, there's the carboxyl on one side, amino on the other side, and then there's just another carbon. Um, so carbon likes to form four bonds. I've described three of them. The third group, or the fourth group, excuse me, is what's called the R group. And R is a placeholder. So it doesn't stand for a particular atom, but rather all amino acids have the parts that I just described, but they vary in their R group. So they vary from very simple, which is, you know, if there's a methyl group in the R group, then that's methionine, which also happens to be the start codon for something I'll explain later. Um, but there's lots of different other ones. And the R groups determine the chemistry of that particular amino acid. So some of them are charged, meaning that makes the amino acid strongly polar. Others of them are acidic. Um, in addition to the amino acidness of the amino acid, some of the R groups impose extra acidity. They have different degrees of desire to form covalent bonds. For example, cysteine is an amino acid that has a sulfurous R group, and those particular amino acids like to join with each other to form a covalent bond called a disulfide bridge, which means two sulfides bound together covalently. And disulfide bridges are important in protein folding because they impose a lot of structural rigidity to a folded protein. But regardless, if you have a bunch of these amino acids and they all have different chemistry and different sort of chemical proclivities, let's say, and you glue them together in a long rope, the chemistry of the R groups is going to determine or impose order on how the protein folds up. So what folded shape it takes. And for the enzymes, which are proteins that do the work of our cells and of our body, that folded shape determines what the enzyme's function is. So we come back to a sort of central principle in biology, which is that structure informs function. Another way to say that that's less fancy is the way things are shaped provides information about what it is that they do. So just as a hammer has a side for hammering nails and a side for pulling nails, and a hammer can't really deal with screws because it's the wrong shape, so too it is with proteins. They're folded up into a shape that allows them to have some function, and they're good at that function, they're not very good at any other function, which means that you have to have a large diversity of enzymes and proteins in order to facilitate a lot of different chemical reactions. 
So let's talk about the levels of protein folding. The first level of protein folding is the primary structure, and this is simply the order of the amino acids. So you could do this in a list. So maybe an amino acid uh, order for a protein, and I'm just going to make this up, is methionine, and I'm starting with methionine because it's usually the start one. So let's see, methionine, proline, proline, leucine, arginine, aspartic acid, isoleucine, arginine, um, stop. So I just made up a very, very, very short primary structure on the fly. Now, how that would fold up, I don't know. I would have to write it down and look at it. Um, but regardless, if you know enough amino acids, you can imagine it's just the order in the rope. Secondary structure comes in one of two forms, typically. So these are called alpha helices. Helices is plural, helix is singular, so it means a spiral. Um, and these aren't like spirals that you would draw on a piece of paper. They're more like uh, a ringlet curl of hair or one half of a DNA molecule. So a tube-shaped spiraling configuration. And these are formed by the R groups in the chain of amino acids having weak, mostly non-covalent interactions with each other. So maybe there's a hydrogen bond between one part of the chain and another part of the chain that pulls the chain into a loop and then that continues on down the chain forming a helix. The other form of secondary structure are called beta sheets and these are zigzaggy corrugated planes. So imagine a piece of corrugated metal or cardboard um, that's what a beta sheet looks like. So the amino acids sort of fold up in a planar fashion, so flat but side by side. And the alpha helices and beta sheets in a very, very long chain of amino acids, those structures themselves will have attractions to other alpha helices or other beta sheets which adds another layer of folding complexity. And this we call tertiary structure. So most globular proteins are really, really, really long chains of amino acids, which means that there's a lot of folding opportunity. And if you're having a hard time visualizing what I'm talking about, go to Google and type in protein crystallography or 3D protein model. And you'll probably see a multicolor three-dimensional model made up of what looks like curly ribbons and sheets. That's what I'm talking about. So that's tertiary structure. And then quaternary structure is imagine you need a protein that's so big that you can't just have one chain of amino acids making it up. You have to have multiple. So each of those chains of amino acids has its own primary, secondary, and tertiary structures, folding them up into sort of globular forms. And then those globs come together to form a larger structure, uh, sort of like, um, let me think, 
multiple transformers coming together to form like a big giant extra large robot um if i may use a geeky analogy i suppose um or the you know like when all the power rangers giant robots come together to form the, the big one i guess um regardless you have multiple subunits combining to form one larger structure so a good example of this is hemoglobin hemoglobin carries oxygen inside of your red blood cells to and from your tissues and it is what is called a tetramer so tetra means four so it has four folded up chains of amino acids that are glued together in sort of a wreath-like shape and that makes up the fully formed hemoglobin so again if you're having a hard time visualizing that go to google and type in hemoglobin 3d structure or hemoglobin structure crystallography and you'll see a picture of what i'm talking about so there's two alpha and two beta chains so with enzymes which are often multimeric meaning more than one chain necessary to build the full form their folded structure is the sum total of a lot of individual mostly non-covalent interactions and in a warm and stochastic meaning chaotic environment just like the inside of our cells um, some not all of these non-covalent interactions are not going to be present 100 percent of the time um, so proteins do something called breathing which is is not respiring really it's just if you were to take a video of a protein minding its own business over time you would see subtle little shifts in the structure not big ones nothing profoundly affecting it but you know maybe there's a hydrogen bond that's in one spot and most of the time it's present but sometimes it's absent because maybe the two participants in the hydrogen bond get pulled apart too far to have that attraction so proteins are just constantly sort of breathing according to the thermal energy of their environment and that's important to understand because it means that proteins are flexible so another way to think about this if you're having a hard time conceptualizing this is think about a spider web so spider webs have a structure usually it's a radial array of threads with uh you know connecting between them uh silk in a spiral if i bother one part of the spider web that motion is going to translate through the web and deform other parts of the web even the parts that i'm not touching by pulling on the web proteins are the same way so they have and regularly experience subtle shifts in form all the time now Enzymes are there to facilitate reactions. And I'm going to talk about biological enzymes, which typically, although not always, do one of two things. They're either going to be performing enzymatic hydrolysis, which means splitting up of something. So your digestive enzymes do this, for example. Or they're going to be performing something called dehydration synthesis, which is where you put two things next to each other and pull a water out and that magically joins them. 
So that is something that should show you that enzymes are capable of both building bonds and breaking bonds. And that's true. They are capable of both things. And in order to do that, they have to first grab onto the thing or things that they're going to be joining or breaking. So another function of the R groups in proteins is that when the protein is folded up, it's going to have some little dents or pockets on its surface that are the right shape physically and the right chemistry to bind to whatever the substrate of the reaction is. So, for example, if I have an enzyme that's going to perform enzymatic hydrolysis, maybe it's going to, oh, maybe it's a disaccharidase. So it's going to split up disaccharides, meaning two sugars bound to each other. It wants to get those sugars separated from each other. So maybe that's what its job is. It's going to have binding sites on its surface for each of those sugars to land so it can pull them apart. So the surface chemistry of the folded up shape of the enzyme is important. And that's what allows the enzyme to do its work. So it has to be the right folded up shape. Now, going back to my spiderweb analogy, how does an enzyme actually do its work? Well, in the case of my digestive enzyme, for example, let's imagine that it does the following. So it's going to bind to the disaccharide I mentioned. And when the disaccharide binds, and again, this is non-covalently, so van der Waals attractions and hydrogen bonding primarily, when it binds, that's going to send reverberations through the rest of the protein that change that protein's shape, just like if a fly lands in a spider web, the motions created by the fly struggling are going to be translated to the rest of the web. And in protein talk, we call this a conformational change, meaning there's a temporary and reversible change in the shape of the protein. Now, in the case of enzymatically hydrolyzing two sugars apart, what this conformational change is going to do is basically put strain on the bond that's connecting the two sugars such that it's more favorable for a water molecule to run into that already strained electron sharing and split them apart. So conformational change is a reconfiguration of the folded shape that's temporary and that's going to put strain on chemical bonds of the thing that binds to the enzyme, we call that the substrate, that changes the chemistry of the substrate. So in my example, um, maltose is two glucoses glued together. So if I'm talking about maltase, which is an enzyme that we all have and rely on, it's going to strain the bond between the two glucoses enough that a water molecule passing by will run into that strained bond and be split up between the two glucoses. So an OH will end up attached to one glucose and an H will end up attached to the other. And then we'll suddenly have two independent glucoses that are not bound together in the form of maltose. Once the split happens, the active site 
on maltase is no longer the right shape to hang on to the glucose because maltase sticks to maltose. It doesn't stick to glucose. So immediately upon the change in chemistry and the change in shape, once the reaction has been successfully catalyzed, now maltase just lets go of the two glucoses and letting go causes it to undergo a conformational shift back to its original conformation so that it can catalyze the same reaction over again. So by placing strain on the bond, that's what lowers the activation energy of the reaction occurring. And then an ambient water molecule does the rest. So going back to my example of thermodynamics and talking about lowering activation energy, it's physical strain on covalent bonding that allows the reconfiguration of chemicals to occur due to catalysis by enzymes. So that's what lowers the activation energy. So let me put it to you another way, and this is an example that most students can kind of intuitively get. Think about one of those really, really thick rubber bands that you get that are holding broccoli together or asparagus, or maybe a really, really thick rubber band that you would use to hold a document together, for example. Regardless, the rubber of this rubber band is really thick. And I give you this rubber band and I give you a pair of plastic child scissors. And I say, okay, I want you to cut the rubber band. In order to make your job of cutting the rubber band easier, what are you going to do to it? And I'll let you pause the podcast here and think about it. Hopefully what you said was, well, I'm going to stretch it out first because that'll make it easier to cut. We all know that, right? If you want to cut something stretchy, if you stretch it out first, it's much easier to cut. Do you know why that is? When you stretch the rubber band, you are putting physical strain on the bonds that are holding the polymer together because plastic is a polymer and so is rubber. So when you decide, okay, I'm going to stretch out this rubber band so I can cut it with these stupid dull scissors, you are physically straining the bonds holding the rubber band together to make the job of cutting easier. So you're lowering the activation energy. Otherwise, you'd have to sit there and kind of saw or gum at the rubber band until eventually it cut. So the same principle is true of enzymes. The physical strain they put on covalent bonds lowers the activation energy for them to be able to form or break chemical bonds. So think about the rubber band analogy. Okay, so we've talked about enzymes and proteins and their shape, and the fact that their folded conformation is not rigid, it's flexible. So proteins flex with ambient thermal energy and they change shape when they bind the thing that they're supposed to bind. And now we can use those principles to describe the behavior of enzymes. So I described to you a situation in which maltase takes the disaccharide maltose, which is two glucose molecules glued together covalently, and it splits the maltose into two glucoses and then lets go. So maltase in your digestive system all day is grabbing maltose, breaking it in half, and letting the resulting glucoses go over and over and over again. And that's nice for you because that means you can then absorb the glucose and use it for energy 
and fuel, right? So our bodies are at about 37 degrees Celsius. That happens to be the preferred working temperature for maltase. Maltase is also what's called a brush border enzyme in our intestines, and those happen to like a more alkaline pH, so above 7, to work in. So temperature and pH are two important determiners of the speed of a chemical reaction. But you can mathematically plot the relationship between a substrate amount, so how much maltose is there, and a given enzyme amount, and track that over time. So if you plot speed of reaction on the y-axis, and you plot substrate concentration on the x-axis, so zero towards the origin and increasing substrate concentration as you move to the right, most enzymes obey a curve form where the speed of the reaction with increasing substrate concentration is initially quite substantial growth, so it looks almost exponential initially, and then as you increase in substrate concentration for a given amount of enzyme, so we're not changing the amount of enzyme available, we're just changing the amount of substrate and looking at how fast the reaction proceeds, once the initial stage where the growth is very rapid has occurred, there is an asymptotic approach to some maximum rate, which is called Vmax, or the maximum velocity of the reaction proceeding for that amount of enzyme. So there's some substrate concentration at which the maximum velocity rate is reached. So that number is called Vmax, and it varies from protein to protein, um, but it's an important way to be able to look at the action of an enzyme and compare enzymes to each other, because they're going to have different Vmaxes um, for their particular operating parameters. So half of Vmax is called K sub M, which is also called the Michaelis constant. So you can look at the graph shape of a particular enzyme, and the Michaelis content, uh, constant, K sub M, is basically the substrate concentration at which half of Vmax has been reached. And it turns out the average operating speed of most enzymes is half of Vmax. So they're typically not all the way maxed out and they're typically not operating at under capacity either. So that tells you something about the efficiency of the enzyme. How efficiently is it converting substrate into product? How efficiently is it catalyzing a reaction um, by binding and then releasing its substrate? So if the graph is curved such that the approach to the Michaelis constant is nearly exponential and then after the Michaelis constant it levels off, that means you have just a regular plain Jane enzyme. 
if you see a graph shape that increases levels off in the middle and then increases again after k sub m, after half the max, that is an indicator that you are looking at an enzyme that is experiencing allosteric modulation, specifically allosteric help or facilitation, meaning that another molecule is binding to the enzyme at some other location and making the enzyme do its work faster. So those are ways to graph the behavior of an enzyme on terms of its ability to turn reactants into products and decipher things about it and allow you to compare it to the action of other enzymes. So enzymes with a lower Michaelis constant, so it takes less substrate for them to reach half of Vmax, either have a low Vmax or they're very efficient at getting an amount of substrate converted, so they're acting very, very quickly. And of course, as I mentioned, you can tell by the graph shape whether the enzyme is just operating by itself or whether it has an allosteric facilitator or inhibitor. So if you saw a decrease or a depression in the speed of the reaction after some midpoint, then you would expect that that enzyme would be, was being allosterically inhibited. So let's quickly address the idea of allosteric modulation. So modulation is just meaning changing the rate of, in this case. And then allosteric sites are areas on the topology of a protein that are not the active site, so not the place where the reactants bind, but rather another location. And the allosteric modulator, by binding to the allosteric site, is going to subtly change the shape of the enzyme in a way that either makes the enzyme better and faster at its job or prevents the enzyme from doing its work. So this is a way to have a given enzyme that you can adjust according to your need by making allosteric molecules that either enhance the enzyme's function or inhibit the enzyme's function. The benefit of this is that you can use one enzyme for multiple different purposes in multiple different physiological contexts. You don't have to have a whole separate enzyme for when you want it to slow down. You can just slow the enzyme down using allosteric modulators. Same deal with speeding it up. So that's what allosteric modulation is all about. It's basically a volume knob on your enzymes. You can turn up the volume to make them go faster, or you can turn down the volume to make them go slower and be quieter. Okay, so that is all about enzymes, including addressing Vmax, or the maximum velocity of the reaction for a given substrate concentration and enzyme concentration, or the Michaelis constant, which is half of Vmax, and what those numbers tell us about enzyme function. So thank you for listening, and I hope this answered everything you want to know about enzymes and more, and I will see you in the next episode.